read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 8. We begin a new chapter in the opening of the seventh seal that is recorded for us. I would invite you to follow along if you have a copy of God's Word. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6 of Revelation, chapter 8. When he, that is Christ the Lamb, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it upon the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as in all things, whether we are eating... We're going about our business through the day, that in all exercises of faithfulness to you, we plead prior that you would bless, that you would by your spirit take this ordinary act of speaking, but speaking and proclaiming your word that is no ordinary word, but it is that living and active sword that divides men in their hearts and causes us either to be moved unto grace or judgment. O oh Lord, may your word sanctify us, set us apart for love and good deeds, all for the glory of your name. Through your word we ask by in your name this morning. Amen. Well, that's the seventh seal, the final seal prior to the trumpets and their sounding that we will find beginning later in chapter 8. These seals, if you will remember, there was a bit of a, a break and a further explanation of the prior seals. They represent Christ's rule and reign on earth. Only Christ the one who is the lamb, though slain, is standing, is able, is worthy, is capable, the second person of the Godhead, the one who died for sinners, he alone is able to open these seals. And so it requires not just divinity, but a certain act of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life, the firstborn of the elect, the one with whom the Father entered into a covenant and all who are his children. Because Christ is doing this here, we find his authority exercised on earth. It is a unique authority. It belongs only to him. And this seal is a unique seal. If you go back and look starting in chapter 6, you will find that all of these seals came with noise. They came with loud thundering. They came with judgment and the pouring out of Christ's righteous rule upon the earth. Yet here, when the seal is opened, there are, well, there's nothing. 
It is silence. And then following that silence, there is great effect of the prayers of the saints mixed with the power of the one who exercises his authority on earth. This morning, I want to talk about the combination of the prayers of the saints and the power of the risen Lord. Two points that I want to make. The first, a moment of silence. And second, an eon of power. A moment of silence and an eon of power. Let's look at the first point, a moment of silence. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, especially in the first few chapters, what we have is a chronicle of exalted liturgy. Liturgy is a fairly fancy word that just means order. We are a liturgical church, and it isn't just order, it is religious or holy order. And so every morning when you get your bulletin, portions of it have announcements, some data in terms of the budget, what's coming, who's got nursery duty, how many people were here last week and the week before last, things that help you keep up with the life of the church. But the meat and potatoes is the order of worship. Um, And we print these things out now in fuller form than you ever had before so that you can go back. And in fact, on the first page, there's always a, a script. There's just lots of scripture. Your liturgy needs to be dipped in the word so that when it's pulled out and you open it up, it's just full of scripture. And the reason for that is this. It is the word of God that is power unto salvation. Whether it is read or it is preached, everything we do is for a reason. First, it is the word of God. Second, because it is God's word, there is this rhythm to it of being called We heed the call. Some exalted truth is given of God. We all together reflect upon that truth. There are elements of the reading of God's word. There is prayer. There is singing. It's all here in Revelation. What we're doing at Reformation is not just coming to worship, but worshiping in such a way that when you get to glory, you're not going, oh, I don't recognize this element, right? Where's the long guitar solo? Well, you don't find that. In fact, what you don't find in Revelation chapter 8 was, and there was a silencing of cell phones in heaven for half an hour. I was praying that a cell phone would have gone off during the pastoral prayer, if only to make the point that it is a distraction-free zone. There should be a basket back there where everybody puts their devices. Right? Why? Because we are so bad at giving our attention to good things. It begins in childhood, right? The tendency to easy boredom. As an adult, I wish I could get bored more often. Because it means what? I have time to think about things that don't always feel like chores. And one of the examples that we have in the book of Revelation when it comes to the rhythm of worship is that we exercise the proper disposition of mind and heart and body at the right time. Now, I know that's hard because you can silence your cell phones, but you know what you cannot silence? 
your children, your own heart, your scattered attention span. And so one of the things that we do see in the book of Revelation that is an improvement upon our worship here is that everybody is doing the right thing at the right time because they're being led. Now that is what a minister of the word does in worship. Is he is calling to you and he's saying, listen, pay attention. This is what we're doing now. Let's do this together. And I will say this about us. When we worship and when we sing, one of the things that you hear by visitors in particular is, man, you guys sing pretty loud for a small church. It helps to have a small room, right? But you should be loud. Not loud like, you know, when you're in a stadium, they say, all right, this side, who's louder, this side or this side? A little, that's twaddle, that's silly, that's trivial. But we should be exercising our habits of worship in such a way that we want the earth to shake with our singing. And this is the rightful rhythm of worship, and it looks like this. It begins with the Lord taking the throne. The king enters into the throne room, and all eyes are upon him. As Psalm 45 says, the fairest of all the sons of men. And he walks in, and you cannot take your eyes off of him. And what begins to build in your heart is this energetic, joyful emotion that can only be expressed by shouting. Have you ever had such an emotion? I don't mean the touchdown, although that can be a good thing. Something that goes far beyond game and sport. It is the shout that is equated with utter absolute victory. Christ has won. He enters as prophet, priest, and king. And we see this time and again. Christ has taken the throne. And then the elders and the angels lead the congregation in singing and then here in prayer. And no one is not singing. Everyone is singing. And it isn't just... You know what I mean? Like parents, when you're trying to get your children to sing in family worship and you... I see your mouth moving. Are you just lip syncing right now? It's loud, and it doesn't have to be perfect pitch, does it? It will be then. It isn't always now. In fact, singing is a beautiful picture of the sanctifying work of God, not just individually, but as a body. Harmony is the ultimate expression of spiritual union as the people of God, and we struggle with harmony. And what's interesting now, especially in the modern age, is we no longer harmonize, and look at how divided the church is. We don't even worship in a way that reflects the priority of congregational singing and corporate worship because we're so focused on the psychological self and the individual self. Worship for me, dot, dot, dot. But what does the worship of heaven look like? 
And what we ought to do is we ought to take the worship of heaven and that template, and we need to press it down on our worship, and all the pieces that squeeze out, we need to trim off and bring them into alignment with the word of God. What we see is worship. And this element that we find here in the loosing of the seventh seal and this expression of Christ's rule and reign on earth is the bringing in of the prayers of the martyrs of chapter 5 and all the saints in every age of the church. Bring it in. Let's bring it together. This is the seventh seal. And it is unique because of the nature of its opening. We read in verse 1, when he, that is Christ, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It's an interesting estimation. In fact, one of the things that we ought to be willing and able and practice to do is to sit for extended periods of time contemplating the glory and the beauty of God. And you bring your pleadings to him. And Christ, shh. In order to do what? To facilitate, to bring before him the prayers of the saints. This is a strange silence because it's wholly unique Certainly, so far, in what we have already seen, the throne room, like Reformation worship, is a very busy, noisy place. There's a lot happening. And there is an incredible, intimate relationship between the worship of the, the church triumphant and what is happening on earth. We don't speak poetically enough about the things that we see happening on earth. And when I say poetically, I don't mean unrealistically. I mean in an exalted way. When we see the things of earth, we think merely in human terms. We are the children of the Enlightenment, and we must cast off naturalistic thinking. We must cast off all of this superficial, rationalistic, limited way of thinking. Reformed Presbyterians are very, we have something to learn from our Pentecostal brethren. And it isn't bad Trinitarian theology. It isn't the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of those things are bad. But what they are comfortable with is this. There is an intimate relationship between that which is unseen, cosmic and eternal, and that which is seen. And oftentimes, we don't want to play what we call the, the weird card among moderns because moderns have become so naturalistic and hedonistic, they cannot envision anything that is beyond worldly pleasure, what they see, what they can taste. Darwin has left his mark upon our earth, and it was long before Darwin. What Satan was getting Adam and Eve to do was to think about life out from underneath the authority of God. He wanted them to ignore his lordship. And what the worship of the saints is, is to press that reality into the minds of those who are constantly running away from it. This throne room is not distant. It is marvelous, but it is intimate in its proximity. I want you to come to church 
less worried about how you are arrayed physically versus how you have arrayed and dressed yourself in your heart. Come soft and teachable. The last thing that you should be looking at before you are here is the stuff of this world. Turn that off at 8 o'clock on Saturday nights. Turn it off at 10 o'clock. Turn it off so that you might have a moment. I mean, can you imagine on your wedding day checking your Twitter feed as you're walking up the aisle? Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is how we live. And what we do is we cut out a corner. Lord, I'm a Christian. Here is your 3%. Right? And what he asks of us, will he not, when we embrace that gift that he has given, that which he calls blessed, will he not, as he says in the book of Isaiah, open up the window of heaven and pour out upon us untold blessing? And this scripture says what? You have not because you do not ask. Why do we not ask? Because we do not desire. Why do we not desire? Because we are filled up with the desires of this world. And the picture of Revelation chapter 8 that we have is a Christ who wishes to bless his people and a people who wish to be blessed by their God. That is the church the world needs to see. And it is honored in heaven by quiet. And what Christ is doing... I love after Sundays because the children are ready to be set loose. And I walk back there and they come up to me and they get out what happened that week. And sometimes it's through all this, it just takes them a minute, right? Their brain is moving 100 miles an hour and their mouth appears to be sort of peeling off. Pastor Fowler, Pastor Fowler, blah, blah, blah. And they can't and it takes about 30 seconds before they get to the point. And you're just going, yeah, yes. If I were cynical, I'd say, all right, I got to talk to someone else. <laughs> I'm going to move on. And sometimes I do this with my own children, and that is to my shame. But we come before God, and we bring our, our petitions to him. And he goes, yes. This is the king. Try to get that audience with any other ruler, try to get that audience even with someone who's a fake Instagram celebrity. In fact, most people exercise and understand their authority in this. I can finally ignore the little guy. Don't bother me. And how many churches do pastors not even know the names of the children in that church? And Christ says, let those come to me. And when Christ says, let the little children come to me, he teaches us something about how we should be, and he teaches us something about himself. Christ wants humble, submissive people. He wants us to bring our cares and our petitions before him. But he says something of himself, which is what? Come on. You're not a problem. You're not a nuisance. You're no bother. Christ hears our prayers. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Because as our great high priest, all of these prayers come to him, and he is the one 
who makes them holy and effective. And so they are brought here before Christ. I saw seven angels standing before God, verse 2. And to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. Now, Pastor Wilson says this. This is not unlike that moment when Joshua led Israel around the city of Jericho. Do you know how they brought down the walls? No shots were fired. No sword was swung. There was singing. For six days, they marched around that city in quiet. Can you imagine? I wonder what the standard of quiet was. (laughs) One in about one million people. It was probably a murmur, but quiet. They were not to call out, to tease, and to mock the inhabitants of that city. And then on the last day, they were to march around that city six times. And then on the seventh time, at the end of that time, they were to scream and blow trumpets. It is a picture of the glory of the conquest of the saints. And the only thing we need to conquer the nations is the worship of the saints. There are other instances in this world, rightly so, where the sword needs to be swung and the gun needs to be fired and violence against the wicked needs to be poured out. But as it relates to the conquest of the church over the nations of men, all we need are people who are willing to be loud. But this shouting and the trumpets that will soon sound are preceded by silence. Why silence? To remind us that the victory is the Lord's. That he is listening, that we are obedient, and that it is not through the weapons of this world that the church will have conquest and dominion. And so this censer is brought, a golden censer also, well, in verse 3, and it contains incense, which the Jews, and rightly we all understand, is that smelling aroma that is brought before God, and the incense that would please God is mixed with our prayers, and it is this holy concoction of the offering of our pleadings before God, and then he hears them, and then he throws them down upon the earth. And you say, what is prayer? Right? Is it not so often and easily ignored? If this is right, if we take this seriously, then what it means is this. Then the gathering of the saints in congregational prayer ought to be the high watermark of your spiritual life. So often it is not. And I think it has to go, it really comes down to this. We think of prayer not as mutually exclusive from action, but there are certain things we're willing to do instead of prayer, thinking that those things are of the same effect in the building of the kingdom. And I'm telling you, they are not. You cannot be fruitful without sowing that which Christ has promised to give fruit. 
And the fruit of the prayers of the saints is what we find next. An eon of power. Now, there are many in the church who will say that the Christian age of the church is merely lesser days. It is a decline of that which was once glorious. I don't know what they point to. What are more glorious days? Help me understand, in the age of Christendom, what is, what is better than now? Listen to me. There are, we've had around 80 on Sunday mornings. This number is as large as those who gathered in the upper room, and they were afraid. I hope that today, in the 80 that we are, we're not afraid of anything. Because we know that Christ is risen, and it's not just these 80, but there are churches in Gastonia that have 10 times as many, and they're hearing the true word of God preached, and they're going forth and they're mobilizing themselves against the kingdom of darkness. I think it's this. Human beings have an addiction to fear and to sorrow, and they don't have an understanding that when we pray, we're not praying huddled in our lips. Now, there are places on earth where this is true. But we don't think of the church as only one place, do we? We hear worship freely while those in Eritrea are undercover. But do you know what will one day happen? The Communist Party of Eritrea will one day bow the knee to King Jesus. And they will no longer be communist. They will relinquish control that they think God has given to them. And they will throw it at the feet of Christ. All the kings of earth will come to the conclusion, either by repentance or judgment, that they were right or wrong. Because Christ's rule and reign and his authority will be expressed in this way. As the prayers are being offered, there is much incense. These prayers that we pray today, that we prayed yesterday, that we will pray tomorrow, will be gathered in with the prayers of the martyrs of chapter 5, and they will be used in order to bring conquest. Jericho did not remain standing, did it? The walls were shaken. They didn't shake. They crumbled to nothing. And Israel just walked into the city. This is what the worship of the saints does. The prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar ascended before God from the angel's hand. Parents, have you ever been asked by your children for something that just blesses your heart? (laughs) Dad, can I have a new Bible? Sure, I'll buy you 16 Bibles if you'll read them. (laughs) You only need one. Dad, can you show me how to tithe Or your children say, can we please sing that song with the chorus, hallelujah? Because it's the only words they can remember. But what words? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh is what we're singing. And you even have to say, I think we've sung it enough. Christ never says, please, stop singing. (laughs) Or your children are walking through the house and they have that little holy ditty stuck in their head. These are the things that we should be teaching our children. These are the things we should never graduate from. I remember when I was in high school and I was on the swim team, 
you had about six minutes. I wasn't that fast, so I saw about a six-minute 500, and I would sing the whole time. I couldn't help it because it was the only thing to pass the time and to sort of distract myself from the pain. It was miserable. But I would always sing, true confession. Do you remember Twyla Paris? Here I am, a 17-year-old man singing Twyla Paris because it's all I heard in my home. Second chapter of Acts, Keith Green, all of those, that's what I grew up on. And I hear it today, and I don't necessarily think it's great, but it has this, or when I was a child and my mother would sing to me, Jesus, name above all names. And every time I hear it, it takes me back to being 12. And in my heart and in my mind, it brings me to that place that as a humble child, I remember hearing the name of Christ over and over and over, and it was always sweet. That is keeping the third commandment. And so these prayers are offered, and Christ wants to hear them. And then after he hears them, He and his divine power, this glorious concoction of incense and prayers, that of those who have suffered for the cause, and all of the saints in every age, somehow what we will one day pray are brought before the throne, and he uses them to accomplish his holy will. First, in Revelation, the judgment of Jerusalem the ultimate pouring out of his judgment against the greatest apostates that have ever lived that of Israel and the Jews in Jerusalem. They got it all, and they squandered it. They rebelled. And all of those who prayed for God's wrath, that his kingdom might be revealed, that wrath was poured out upon Jerusalem, and I would add, unto the furthering conquests of all the nations, By the righteousness of Christ revealed against ungodliness. And so verse 5, the angel took the censer, he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it upon the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This This is the kingdom of Christ manifested in glory. Now, we need Revelation 8 because the work of the church does not always feel like... I mean, maybe we should change our name to Thunder, OPC. (laughs) Sound of Thunder. Something like from American Gladiator. Remember those stupid names that those contestants would have or the characters on that show? Something to convey strength. But what have we done, especially in America as a church? We're more like whimpering simps. We are cowardly. We say, we are hands folded sitting politely, OPC. Right? Be careful not to offend or have people think ill of you, OPC. It is, and this is the reason... We, I, A, don't have a conquest mindset, a dominion mindset, and we think that the way that we reach the world is to first be liked and then to get them with a sneak attack. But you know what always happens? We are so concerned with being like that we begin to dress like the world. 
and talk like the world and listen to the same music as the world. Oh, I know Drake lyrics. Can I tell you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And they look at you and go, what does Drake have to do with Jesus? And you say, nothing. I'm not sure why I wasted my time. And I've wasted an enormous amount of my time in order to seek to be culturally relevant. And for all my cultural relevance, you know what I've gotten? Garbage. In. The only vision of the kingdom that we need to have, the vision that we have thrown off, is that of Revelation chapter 8. The world says, look at my kingdom. And what the church is called to do is say, no, no, no. Look at Christ's kingdom. You want glory? You want noise? You want authority? You want power? It's here. And the way that it comes is you fall on your face, you get on your knees, and you pray along with your labors, Christ, do the thing that my labors cannot do in and of themselves. Bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And so the question for post-mills is always, how do you know? I will know when there are more people in church on Sunday than at Target. People are driving like crazy now. You know when they're driving? After they get up, they happen to have brunch, they wake up from their, their day's slumber from a Saturday night wasted, and then they stumble into Starbucks and Target. And you know what Target is trying to teach us? It is an eschatology of transsexuality. It is, it is, there is no standard. There is no imago Dei. There is only you make of yourself that which you wish. And what Revelation chapter 8 is teaching us is this. Christ will have dominion. And we need to get excited about that fact. And we need to stop thinking that Christ will one day do it when he comes back but that Christ will do it now if we are serious about praying and the answers to those prayers. Now, I'm worked up. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm not just excited. I'm offended by the things that I see. I'm offended that the things that I love, the things that I, even that entertain me, like I love watching football, I love that one of my sons loves watching basketball, but I cannot recommend it because it has been dipped not in a garb of let's run and play and sing all for the glory of God, but we have clothed ourselves in the glory of men. And what do you get for that? I mean, LeBron James will be in the NBA Hall of Fame. But he's a horrible human being. And the people that we look up to, that we by default ought to look up to, men who have accomplished great things, women who have accomplished great things, what they have done is they have erected an idol of themselves and they say, come. But how can we be part of the very thing that we are praying will be toppled. So much of the life that we know, if our prayers are answered, would be gone. 
Do you wish to pray for the glory of God that his law would be upheld? Then what does the fourth commandment mean for the whole of society? What does it mean if everybody that is in our society gathers into his house for worship and doesn't just spend an hour and a half, but endeavors to keep the whole day? Guess what you cannot do? You cannot busy yourself with worldly employment and entertainment. And you may say, well, what do I do all day on Sunday? And I would say to you, you get to stop and not just take a nap, but you could spend that time, and I'm preaching to myself, (laughs) in prayer. And you would go, that's a long time. And I would say to you, how glorious would the fruit of that prayer be? In fact, oftentimes, we do not plead enough that Christ finds our askings weak. Are you sure you want that? Because you haven't really asked for it a lot. But we are to bow before the throne of heaven and we are to pray. So what is the significance of this passage, along with all that I've already said? Your prayers for the kingdom of Christ will avail much in relationship to the power of Christ. And what will happen over time through the prayers of the saints is this eon of power and dominion. And far be it from us that we would think that the age of the church on earth will always look like this age. And when I say things are getting better, I don't just mean spiritually, that the church is growing, but that every aspect of what is good and true and beautiful will be manifested in the same way that when the earth shakes, there are not people who will say, I am volunteering to not participate in this earthquake. Right? You don't get to do that. If you lived on the coast of Thailand... In 2004, guess what? You don't say to the tidal wave that comes from that underground earthquake causing the tsunami, I'm opting out of this natural disaster. No. The church is the force that all of the world must contend with, whether they like it or not. And they're actually contending with it, even at times, and they don't realize it. But there will come a time, and there has come a time, and there will continue to be a time when the kingdom of Christ and its effect is like thunder, lightning, and earthquakes. The church will fill the whole earth. This is the result of an ascended king. Christ isn't upon the throne hoping for the best. Right? Boy, I really hope they do what they're supposed to do. (laughs) Christ doesn't throw his bread out on the water and go, well, we'll see what happens. He justifies the means and the ends. And so we ought to pray. And this, to me, is the exhortation we always find throughout the scriptures. Wherever we send our prayers, we ought to follow quickly with our feet. 
Whatever we are praying for, the dominion of the world, the salvation of our neighbors. Let's just start where we can start. Because this isn't the prayer of five Christians. These are the prayers of the billions upon billions of human beings that will have been converted and brought into the household of God over the span of the millennia that Christ has established to bring in his chosen people. And when those billions upon billions plead before the throne, it cannot help through the power of Christ but accomplish his means, his ends. Christ will have dominion. Do we not sing this? Christ will have dominion. And then the trumpets sound. We are marching around Jericho. And we plead with the Lord. We exalt him so that the trumpets might blow and Christ would have dominion. What I would ask of you today is though it is small and it feels like a very simple expression to spend time in prayer for those things that you know are pleasing to God and are in accordance with God's will. Sunday is a day to pray for Christ's kingdom. Now, when I say kingdom, don't be so vague and general in your prayers that you don't even know who you're praying for. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your children. Pray for your spouse. Pray for the members of this church. Pray for them by name. Use the prayer directory. Pray, pray, pray. Because this is where our prayers end up. They do not fall to the ground. They are not trampled upon. They are not wasted. But they are brought into the presence of God. And he hears and he answers. Let's pray.